And um, uh, everybody, Randy, everybody, everybody, Randy. And um, Randy and I are new friends just this year. I, have to, I can't not talk with my hands and hold my banana bread at the same time. My banana bread's going on a journey here. Um, so Randy and I are, are pretty new friends this year, and we met in a really cool way. We met through our kids. So our kids met through our, their home learners program and just decided that they really liked each other, and we just kept hanging out in the schoolyard and having conversations. And, and uh, Randy found out that I was pastor, I found out that Randy's done a lot of pastoring in his life. He is, you are, are you, you're the marriage mentor is your technical title, according to your website. Yeah. But he has a, a mentoring and, and counseling business now. His lovely wife, Hannah, is a music teacher. And it's one of those things where we sort of went, wait a second. Do you know, you know Sandra Vandershaff, who's my kid's godmother? Wait a second. You know Karen and Stephen Chu? Have, so you guys have worked with Karen and Stephen in International China Concern. Yeah. yeah. And... Um, and so back March or April, we were hanging out in the schoolyard waiting to pick up our kids. And he said, so how's that uh, sabbatical planning going? Because he knew what that meant. And I was like, well, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to find teachers for the sabbatical. And he was like, oh, yeah, how's that going? And I was like, actually, I still have some spaces. Want to come? <laughs> so he said, sure, no problem. So that was sort of how that went down. Yeah. Um, but since then, we've just, our kids have, have been writing postcards to each other since they've been on their vacation. And... And it's just been really lovely, one of those kind of family love at first sight things that happens sometimes. So our, my kids, uh, Miranda and Brendan, are here with Eleanor and, and the guys at the park today. Mm-hmm. And I'm excited to hear what Randy has to say. We were exchanging jokes back and forth where he was like, avarice. Yeah, she's that. Yeah, you get there. I don't want to blow your, to blow your joke. I don't want to give it away. You already had some good ones, but I don't want to steal your thunder. <laughs> so, um, so, yeah, may, may I pray for you? Please. Okay, that would be great. So if you're comfortable to put your hand out or whatever extension of blessing you'd give to Randy, please go ahead and do that now. Thank you, Lord. Lord, thank you that um, your kingdom comes when we invite it in, in every, every place in our lives, Lord, in our work, in, in our school, in our families, in our kids. And, um, and that you're the one that's made this divine connection between our church and Randy and his family, our family and his family, and, and just completely believe that that's you and how you work, and that you knew. You knew, no matter how casual I was about, man, you seem like such a good guy. Do you want to come talk at my church? Um, that there was nothing about this that was filling a hole in a schedule for you but that this is all about the word that you have for Randy and his life at this point in time, what it is that you've been speaking to him about it, why it is that by your Holy Spirit you gave him this message for this time, and what it is that you have for us as a church. Our time in this series has been so rich, and we have every faith that you will move again today. Would you give us hearts of expectation, Lord? Sometimes in a series like this where we're constantly self-examining, sometimes it might be tempting for us to think, oh man, not again, what do I have to look at today? But would you give us hearts of expectation for what it is that you want to do in us and with us and through us, together as a community and through Randy's words? Would you open his heart and his mouth and would you open our hearts and our ears? And I I ask these things 
um, in the precious name of you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. 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 Do I have to say this far back? Can I? I can, I can, I can come up. I can just preach from the back. Banana bread. Speaking of which, Joanna. <laughs> well, and it's 11. Oh, here I am. I have a bit of a cold, so if I start hacking or coughing, you have to forgive me. Hopefully, hopefully you can hear me through the din of my cold. It's 1124. Now, what was your name at the back? I didn't catch it earlier. Gordy? <laughs> yeah. But, um, was saying, said, what does it mean when the pastor looks at his watch partway through the sermon? Absolutely nothing. So I wanted, I want to make sure. We, we have some time, especially for some discussion at the end and some ministry time, and I'm really excited about that. So I want to make sure we leave time for that. Well, it is great to be here at Vancouver East Vineyard. We moved to Vancouver back in 98. I was explaining to someone earlier. And even before that, I visited a friend who used to go, um, he used to go to Vancouver South Vineyard in the mornings for the worship and then to St. John's in the evening for the teaching. I'm not sure exactly what's, what he said by that. But so we'd come and visit him and we loved the, the vineyard atmosphere. And we've been a part of a few different churches in Vancouver and uh, just have never really had a chance to connect. 10th Avenue Alliance is where I was a pastor for almost seven years. And when was that big anniversary you had? Last year. Just last year, and you, had, you hosted it there. I was there doing a training or something, so I poked my head in and saw a few people that I knew, and it was really exciting to see and see you celebrate all that God's doing here. So it's great to come. Joanna invited me to come and speak, and, and she said that, she, that I that I'd be speaking on avarice. I just gave her the dates that I was available, and this was the one date, and she said, you'll be speaking on avarice, and I said, avarice. Um, isn't she that one married to Chad Kruger from Nickelback? <laughs> avarice? A- oh, Avril. That's right, that was Avril. And since we've, I found, since found out that they've broken up. No. And they're back together? Oh. Who knows? It's hard to keep up with these. And I thought, I started working up some, you know, looking at her history, and, and then I realized Avarice, no, isn't Avril. Uh, so what is Avarice? That's the tricky thing. Uh, I know I was chatting with someone, and they said, well, I was going to start looking up on my phone what Avarice is. And they said, you're the one that's speaking, so can you tell me what it is? I said, well, hopefully. Hopefully we'll figure that out together as we start. Now, to do that, we are going to look at, um, at Matthew 6. So if you want to pull out your Bible or your app or whatever you use or you just want to sit back and listen, you can do that. And we are going to read from Matthew 6, verses 19 to 34. Hopefully that's not too much. We'll see if we can get through it all, or most of it anyways. So hear the word of the Lord. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye of the lamp, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. 
But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life. What you will eat or drink or about your body, what you will wear, it is not, is not life more important than food and the body more important than clothes. Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. The word of the Lord. So, who here, if I were to ask, who here has enough money? Enough money. You know, I hold up this beautiful purple bill. I can see you through it. I, I, got, I, I see that hand. Yeah, what goes, what goes through your mind when I pull out some money and hold it up? What if I were to offer it to you? Would anyone here say, uh, nope, I, got, I can't think of any use for that. <laughs> what is that? I think, uh, I think we could all have a number of things on our mind of what we could do. What's your heart saying? That's true. <laughs> I did have a $50 bill that I thought maybe that would have a little bit more impact, but I forgot it at home. Uh, too, too risky to pull that one out. But what, what does our heart say? Uh, when we think of money, what's going on in there? I suggest I know that I feel a number of conflicting emotions when I think about money. And what, what we're reminded today is that Jesus has some good news to us about money. Now, I'm sure you've all been reading your book, The Good and the Beautiful. Everyone's been diligent studying that in your small groups. Now, okay, I've, I've been a pastor long enough to know that though we decide together as a church to do something, we don't all get in on it, and that's okay if you haven't. I, I really enjoyed reading uh, on, some, on a number of the, the chapters, looking through as well as uh, I just printed off this one on learning to live without avarice. And uh, some amazing stuff. 
The fact that you guys are going through this whole long series is a beautiful thing. I love seeing how it starts with God and who God is and God who is good and God who is self-sacrificing. And then we move into these things of learning to live without things that we don't that aren't very helpful for us. It's a great way, I think, to go through and lay out how God is working in our lives. So when it comes to avarice, learning to live without avarice, I thought, well, maybe there's a different, different words that we could use for that. I thought we're at the vineyard, so we have to throw in kingdom somewhere, right? Like kingdom economics. I think he mentions that a couple times, actually. And I thought, that, that fits very well, not only with the vineyard, but just... And with my soul, the idea of kingdom economics. Because we could say, let's learn to live without, and it's sort of negative, but what's the positive connotation with that? What are kingdom economics, or good news for those who use money? And I think that's most of us. Good news for those of us that use money. So what is it about money that drives us, that has a hold on us, that overwhelms us, that we need to look at this, and we need to look at living without avarice? Well, I think a few things from the good, the good news that Jesus has for us. He wants to save us from insecurity and injustice. He invites us to look at where we place our security. And he invites us not to worry, not to waste our time with it. So we're going to look at those three things today. And don't worry, we will get to a definition of avarice soon. Some would say that this is the ailment of our age. Uh, I know in the Good and Beautiful, in the study guide, they are encouraging everyone to watch the documentary Affluenza. Has anyone looked at it yet or thought about it? We, uh, well, look at this. Let's, uh, let's take a look at a little bit of it right now, and it will whet your appetite. There's nothing physically wrong with you. Then why do I feel so awful, so bloated and sluggish? Nothing gives me joy anymore. Not the house, the car, the clothes, the raise. Nothing. Doctor, I'm frightened. Well, do something. Can't you give me a pill? There's no pill for what's wrong with you. I'm afraid you're suffering from affluenza. Oh, my God. Why me? Is it fatal? It's catastrophic. It's the new epidemic. Well, there is a cure, isn't there? Possibly. Affluenza is a major disease. There's no question about it. And many people suffer from it, but very few people are aware that that's what they're suffering from. I love that, eh? Real doctor. Real psychologist. And it goes on. Uh, it's, it's actually, it's, it's really great. Uh, and I love it. So if you want to take a look, you can see there, it's from 1997, a little while ago. I think maybe, did, did that woman look familiar? Maybe we found out what Joanna did before she became a pastor <laughs> here. <laughs> there you, yeah, I can see you doing that very well. 97, yeah, maybe that was. Just that, that touch of makeup. <laughs> well, you know, it's amazing what you can do with makeup. Well, that's from 1997, one year before David Roos's Sweet Mercies was released, by the way, if you remember that. So it doesn't seem like that long ago if you put it in that perspective. 97, affluenza. 
and you can take a look. One question they ask is, is there a cure? What's the cure? Fluenza. We want to take a look at what Jesus says about money. Because rather than any documentary, I would prefer us to take a look at Jesus and follow him with what he says. And he says an awful lot about money, an amazing amount. So first of all, he, uh, he wants to save us from insecurity and injustice. So he says, moth and rust destroy, thieves break in and steal. I remember once seeing a t-shirt that said, money can't buy you happiness, but it can buy you a bottle of wine. I thought that was a pretty good t-shirt. It wasn't it Jesus that said, we all need help to feel fine, we, let's have some wine? Of course, that was in God's spell, not the gospel, just to clarify. Now, we know, we know that money can't buy us happiness. We know that, yet we strive after it. 18% of those surveyed, in a, this was a survey just last year, said money is a taboo subject in their family. 36% say talking about money makes them uncomfortable. 72% of adults report feeling stressed about money at least some of the time. 22% say that they experience extreme stress about money. 26% of adults report feeling stressed about money most or all of the time. Significant sources of money-related stress include paying for unexpected expenses, paying for essentials, saving for retirement. 32% of adults say that their finances or lack of money prevent them from living a healthy lifestyle. Money is a somewhat or very significant source of stress for the majority, 64%. But even more so for parents, I think we have some of those here, 77%. Millennials, 75%. Gen Xers, 76%. What is avarice? Avarice is the insatiable desire for money or possessions. Otherwise known as greed, but sort of. The clarification that Smith gives us in in the chapter is specifically greed for money or possessions. We can have greed for all sorts of number of things, but avarice is that specific focus on money or possessions. The Catholic Encyclopedia, I thought that would be good to take a look at since we're at St. David's. They have some, actually some great things that they brought up about this. It's special malice, broadly speaking, lies in that it makes the getting and keeping of money, possessions, and the like a purpose in itself to live for. It does not see that these things are valuable only as instruments for the conduct of a rational and harmonious life. Due regard being paid, of course, to the special social condition of which one is placed. Insofar as avarice is an incentive to injustice in acquiring and retaining of wealth, it is frequently a grievous sin. In itself, however, it is, in, and insofar as it implies simply an excessive, excessive desire of or pleasure in riches, it is commonly not a mortal sin. So it's how it connects us, this driving. We have the love of money is the root of all evil, Scripture tells us. It leads us towards all these things. It's one of the seven deadly sins, also known as covetousness. So it's even a part of the Ten Commandments. Paul in Colossians 3.5 says, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, 
evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. That's a pretty nasty list, and he puts this in with it. I thought it's also interesting, and when we look at, at the Greek, it comes from a, a word that says specifically, have numerically more. Properly, the desire for more things, lusting for a greater number of temporal things that go beyond what God determines is eternally best. This idea of coveting, of, of longing for more. Now, of course, for those of us that live in Burnaby, I know there's some here that do, they would say, well, that's an issue for Vancouverites, isn't it? <laughs> you know, and those of us in East Van would say, well, that's a West Side issue, right? And West Siders would say, well, probably if that's an issue if you live downtown in Yale Town and those in Yale Town said, well, if you owned a penthouse, that's probably an issue for you, this whole greed thing. And those that live in the penthouses probably point to a guy like Jimmy Pattison and say, well, he probably struggles with that, but not us. Like the ruler of Tyre that Ezekiel lambasts in chapter 28, he says, by your wisdom and understanding, you have gained wealth for yourself and amassed gold and silver in your treasuries. By your great skill in trading, you have increased your wealth. And because of your wealth, your heart has grown proud. We might look at others and say, they have this ailment. But do we? It feels good to compare ourselves to the 1% of the richest. But when we are in the 10%, we must be aware of the, money that, of the hold that money has on us. Whether we have lots or whether we have little. There's something in us that longs for more. We're inundated with images every day of wanting more. And it has, uh, it, it resides in here somewhere, this emotional connection to what gives us pleasure. When I was really small at Christmas, my, my siblings thought they'd have some fun with me. They gave me a cassette tape. It was a, my very first cassette tape that I had ever had. And when I opened it up, I unwrapped it, it was a Salty songbook. Anybody remember Salty, the songbook? No? And it was Christian musicals, beautiful. This is a big hymn book named Salty. And I was so excited that I got my first cassette tape, and I opened it up, and it was empty. There was no tape in it. Yeah. Oh. I was devastated. I thought, what cruel joke is this to give me a, a cassette case without the cassette, and I was devastated. So much so that when later in the evening they opened, they gave me another gift, and I opened it up, and it was a Walkman with the cassette in it. Isn't that so sweet? I could hardly enjoy it, because I was still so distraught over getting this. But it's, so it's how we connect with getting something. How we connect with getting something, and the pleasure that it brings us. Uh, those of you that have read the chapter um, may have seen how Smith talks about this peace in our brain, that when we connect and have a spiritual experience with our Lord, it, it lights up this one piece. And they've done studies that when someone gets something that they really like, when they purchase something, um, get enough money 
that lights up that exact same spot in the brain. And so it acts as this altar to us. Now, Jesus came to give us abundant life, and I don't deny it. And some would believe that that includes financial insecurity, yet Jesus also said, in this world, you will have trouble. And when it comes to money and God, he tells us that we will love one and hate the other, despise one and be devoted to the other. Is this hyperbole? As Jesus often uses hyperbole. In any case, it's strong enough language to cause us to pause, to question. In Luke 12, 15, just before he gives the do not worry speech, he says, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. So I think he does want to give us abundant life, but he knows and wants to save us from the insecurity that we have, the anxiety that's produced when we put our our hope in money. He invites us to look, therefore, at where we place our security. Where your treasure is, there is your heart. Do we put our money as our treasure? And do we place our hearts there? And it's very complex. For many of us here, we have chosen to put our trust in Jesus. I assume most of us. He is our security. He is where we put. The songs we sang this morning, beautiful. Holy surrendered. Thank you for leading us, by the way. It was wonderful. And yet... We seek to live it out during the week, but we also need to pay our bills. And we are hounded daily by ads and temptations. And many of us are providing for more than just ourselves. Others rely on us, and we must bring in enough money. So just how much is enough? Just this week, I was looking at at one of our children's books. And in the thank yous at the, at the start of it, the author was listing people to thank, to, that she was thanking. And she mentioned this, a certain foundation. And the way she said it was, um, you know, it's, and thank you so much to such and such a foundation for offering peace of mind. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. And then I realized as the author, you know, she needs to get paid, and probably, most likely, this foundation is paying for the writing of this book, and therefore, she has peace of mind. She knows she has some money coming. So where do we get our peace of mind? Another book... um, and I remember when I first ran in, into uh, Renovare for Smith, uh, took over from Richard Foster. I'm sure we have some Richard Foster fans here. Another book that Richard Foster wrote that really unpacks this is called Freedom of Simplicity. And Foster says this, but, and here comes the rub, All of us feel that we are in complete control of our desire for things. We would never admit to an ungovernable spirit of covetousness. The problem is that we, 
like the alcoholic, are unable to recognize the disease once we have been engulfed by it. Only by the help of others are we able to detect the inner spirit that places wealth about God. And we must come to fear the idolatrous state of covetousness. Because the moment things have priority, radical obedience becomes impossible. And I'm thankful for the opportunity to have some ministry time in a bit. And I want us to offer that up. How much are we distracted by this hold that money has on us? For Jesus knows it's insecure. And he invites us to take a look at it. And where are we, are we putting our security in it or in him? And he invites us not to worry, not to waste our time on money. He says, seek first the kingdom and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry. I told you I enjoy the Freedom of Simplicity book. And when I was first looking into that book, a good friend of mine was, his favorite book was The Wealthy Barber. Any Wealthy Barber fans out there? Uh, some, there's some great ideas in his books. Of course, with The Wealthy Barber, you pay yourself first. 10% invested. And that's not even including retirement savings. That's his main rule. And what he says is, wealth beyond your wildest dreams is possible if you follow the golden rule. Invest 10% of all you make for long-term growth. If you follow that one simple guideline someday, you'll be a very rich man. Wealth beyond your wildest dreams. Sounds pretty good. Sounds tempting. Sounds a little tempting. Well, not surprisingly, Foster's take in Freedom of Simplicity is a little different. In fact, not only does he encourage tithing, but would say tithing is like a base, a base minimum, the 10%, to give in a kingdom mindset. And he has this great little quote talking about how practically this could look. Together, the family prayerfully decides on the budget for that year. It is lean, trim, realistic. Provision is made in the budget for retirement. Thank you, wealthy barber. And other similar concerns. Included in the budget is a tithe on the budget. Then any money which comes in in excess of that budgeted figure is given in its entirety to kingdom purposes. In this way, God can trust us to be an unimpeded conduit. We can be the joyful channel for God's resources. And we will marvel that God is using us, trusting us. Now, so does, does this mean that we are not supposed to have, take wisdom into consideration when we make financial choices? When Jesus says, why do you worry about clothes? See how the lilies of the field grow. Does that mean, okay, yeah, so I don't have to worry about it? I don't have to worry about clothes. I don't have to buy new clothes. I sort of picture a guy like Wade, who's out with the kids, giving them a great time. I sort of picture him trusting God to clothe him, so walking out in his skivvies one day. And just like Cinderella, those little blue birds come flying down with a leather jacket and a kilt 
and mice come running up with Doc Martens, and they just put them on. And he just walks out and goes around his business. Right? Is that what it looks like for us to trust God with his clothes, with our food, with all of this? What does it mean to seek first the kingdom? It is not money that is evil, but our love of money. It's how much we're grasped by it. Do we have to hold these things for ourselves? Or can we be freed from that so that we can make wise choices? Choices about money, choices about retirement, choices about what we buy for food or clothes without feeling like we have to have something, without feeling like we're being drugged forward by it, that we're freed from it. The writer to the Hebrews takes it a step further. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. And as I speak today, I know that Joanna spoke back in May on the goodness of God. And I went back and I listened to that sermon. It was this wonderful interaction. Now I can sort of picture it with all the kids up here and talking with the kids. If you haven't heard it, go back and listen to that. On the goodness of God. He says, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. If we can get into our minds that God is with us and that God is good, then we do not have to strive after. We do not have to be tugged by the love of money and possessions filling that. He will take that spot in our lives. When we find ourselves anxious, irritated, fearful, it's worth stopping for a moment. And seeing if we are truly serving the wrong God. We are relying on a broken cistern that cannot hold water. And Jesus wants to save us from that insecurity. To honestly look at where we are placing our security. To place it on him. And to stop worrying. Because we are meant for so much more than just to work for money. So what do we do now? This is what I want to take some time as we discuss. Foster says, in the freedom of simplicity, begin now to obey him in every way you can. Start right where you are, in the midst of all the tasks that press upon you. Do not wait for some future time when you will have more time or be more perfect in knowledge. And I know in our, in our bulletins program today, there's that pink sheet. And that's from Smith saying, this uh, a spiritual toolbox, or what's it called? Soul, soul, training. soul training, yeah, soul training. De-accumulating. Someone say it for me. Deaccumulating or deaccumulation of just stripping away some things in our life, and can we do that? 
over this next week, are there some things in your life that you feel like you could give away? Not something that you don't want anyways, but something that you love. Could you give it away? And I'd love to turn it over for a little bit just to you, to say, is there something that you struggle with with this topic? Are there some practical ways that God has invited you to learn to live without avarice, to let go of your hold on money? Maybe someone has something that they'd like to, to add. It's so obvious that you are here among us, moving in us. It's not easy to come together and talk about money and to use an old word like avarice and unpack that without us feeling defensive or guilty, condemned, and yet that is not the work that you are doing here this morning. You have come to bring freedom. You have come to bring joy. You are here to bring true security. And so we open ourselves up to you. And we ask that you would reach into those places in our hearts. That you would speak to us and show us where we are grasping onto money. And that you would free us Stir in us the grief that you feel by our arrogant accumulation. Well, Christian brothers and sisters <coughs> struggle in poverty. Help us to see beyond our noses so that justice may roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Free us from our own self-interest that we might be free from the hold that money has on us. Free to make great decisions about buying good quality things that are necessary 
and not the latest thing that is unnecessary. Not to pay ourselves first, but to give to you and your kingdom first. I just open it up if anyone has a word from the Spirit for us.